0: The seven last words of Jesus, can you look at such suffering? The passion and death of Jesus Christ, which we recall in this Good Friday meditation on Jesus' seven last words, calls us to the cross, to recall a rather dreadful narrative that, as far as most of us are concerned, we would rather not recall, and probably wouldn't if the church didn't confront us with it. Left to ourselves, our inclination is to turn our gaze away from such suffering. Yet how can we avoid the spectacle of suffering on this earth? The more we delve into history, the more we realize that there has never been a time when man's cruelty to man has not been in evidence. And sadly, we see no prospect that it will be otherwise in the future. Christ never turns his gaze away from the suffering of mankind. And throughout his life on earth, he meditated on the scriptures that foretold the sufferings that he would have to endure in order to transform pain so that it would no longer be a doom, but a gateway to salvation and eternal life. So we come to the foot of the cross. We come to listen. We come to reflect. We come to pray that his gift of himself, his passion and death, will bring meaning, will bring life to our life stories, and will transform our lives. The first word comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, verse 34. When they came to the place called the skull, They crucified him and the criminals there, one on his right, the other on his left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Father, forgive them. Leonardo da Vinci told a fascinating story about the creation of his masterpiece, The Last Supper. When da Vinci first started working on the painting, he lived in Milan, and as he set out to paint the piece, he decided he wanted to find a young man to pose for each of the persons in the painting. He wanted to find someone he imagined might look like what Jesus would look like, someone he could conceive of how the other disciples might have looked like. So he began to search throughout Milan. Some days he would walk the streets for hours at a time, looking at men's faces searching for his disciples searching for his Jesus one day he was in the cathedral in milan and during mass the choir was singing and he looked up into the choir loft and he saw this one young man who he looked like what he thought jesus would look like so he approached the young man after mass and asked him if he would agree to pose for the painting the young man agreed and He came to Leonardo da Vinci's studio for four to five days in a row, and every day he sat there for many hours on end while da Vinci painted him. When he was finished, da Vinci thanked the young man, and he began his search for the other twelve disciples. And one by one he found them. The search wasn't easy, it took many years. After three years, he had found all his disciples except one. Judas. He couldn't find himself a Judas. He would walk through the Milan streets for hours and hours a day and he became quite frustrated. Four years passed and still he had found no one to pose for the person of Judas. So he decided he was looking in all the wrong places. He figured if he was going to find the person of Judas, he had to look in a place where this type of person would congregate. So he began to search in the prisons on the outskirts of Milan. At the time, there were five different prisons, so he went one by one. And finally, in the fourth prison, he found a young man who he looked looked like who he thought Judas would have looked like. He had a harsh face, he had a scar here. There was a certain look of resentment in his eyes and impatience in his face. He explained to this young man what he was doing, and he asked the young man if he would agree to come and pose for the painting. The young man agreed, and arrangements were made to bring the man from the prison to da Vinci's studio in Milan. So there in the studio, da Vinci set about finishing his masterpiece. During the second day, da Vinci noticed the young man would look at Leonardo, look at the painting, and then would look down. And each time this happened, Da Vinci sensed that there was a a certain sadness growing in the heart of this young man. So at one point, he stopped painting, and he just said to the young man, Is there something wrong? Am I upsetting you in some way? And the young man just said no. And Leonardo just continued painting. Half hour later, he noticed the sadness had grown so deep that he thought that at any moment, the young man was just going to collapse into tears. So he stopped again, and he said to the young man, is there something wrong? Have I offended you? You seem so upset. The young man put his hands over his face and he began to weep inconsolably. After several minutes when he began to compose himself, he looked up at Da Vinci and said, Master, do you not recognize me? And Da Vinci was kind of surprised and said, no, I'm sorry, I don't. Have we ever met before? And the young man said, yes, seven years ago, I posed for you in the same painting as the person of Jesus. Within each of us is the capacity for great love as well as great evil. We can respond to God's grace in our lives and participate in the very life of God and resemble Jesus Christ. Or in our sinfulness, our image can become distorted, and we can even reflect a Judas. It's hard though, part of us thinks it should be easy, yet we seem to need those reminders over and over again. Like the words we hear from St. Paul, let love be sincere, hate what is evil. The first words though from the cross speak to us of a Jesus who understands the struggle. As he looks out at those in the crowd, he cannot help but notice some of those same people beneath the foot of the cross were waving palm branches at him just five days earlier. For some reason, they had made a bad choice. For some reason, they had chosen evil rather than good. For some reason, our Savior in the midst of his sorrow and pain continues to look out with those loving eyes of his and to say the words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Yet Jesus knows for sure that within us we have that capacity to reflect him or to reflect that betrayer, Judas. The complex choices we make between good and evil, right and wrong, affect us, affect who we are and who we most resemble. Yet the first words we hear from Jesus crucified on the cross isn't, why have you done this to me? It's a profound statement of amazing love saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. All in the hopes that as we acknowledge the times when we've been to Judas, the times we've made the wrong choice, we can trust that God will wipe away those images and draw the Jesus Christ that is within us out to the forefront. The second of Jesus' last words from the cross come from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, verses 39 to 43. Now one of the criminals hanging there reviled Jesus, saying, are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. The other, however, rebuking him, said in reply, Have you no fear of God, for you are subject to the same condemnation? And indeed, we have been condemned justly, for the sentence we received corresponds to our crimes. But this man has done nothing criminal. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He replied to him, Amen, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Amen, I say to you, this day you will be with me in paradise. In his book titled Night, Eli Wiesel gives graphic and horrifying details of his experience inside a Nazi death camp. He told of one occasion when a young boy was hanged with two other men at the Nazi camp of Buna we sell rights for more than half an hour. He stayed there, struggling between life and death, dying in slow agony under our eyes, and we had to look him directly in the face through it all. He was still alive, and I passed in front of him. His tongue was still red. His eyes were not yet glazed. Behind me, I heard someone asking, Where is God now? And I heard a voice within me answer him, Where is he? Here he is. He's hanging here on this gallows. As we come to the foot of the cross, we gaze at a pivotal moment of history. We gaze on the cross and see what appears to be a pitiful, broken man. And the church calls us to behold our king. The experience of Calvary, the crucifixion of Jesus, the killing of God intellectually, It seems so illogical, it's so impossible to imagine happening. And yet, is it any more illogical than when we look at the world around us, at man's inhumanity to man, at how we don't see each other, let alone treat each other as brothers and sisters? With that reality before us, the idea that humanity could kill God doesn't seem illogical or as impossible. In a sense, we seem to continue crucifying Jesus again in every act of violence, in every injustice, in every betrayal, in every act of victimization. Jesus is crucified in every death, in every suffering, in every sin. The paradox of this day, the thing that makes Good Friday good, is that we have a Lord who doesn't abandon us in the sufferings we endure or the trials we face. Nor does he look for an opportunity to punish us for our sinfulness, our lack of love to him and to each other. What makes Good Friday good is that our God knows the pain and the despair and the fear that is part of our human experience. Our God has experienced the anger, the brutality, the selfishness that we are capable of inflicting on one another firsthand. But our God, who possesses a love we cannot begin to fathom, meets us in that pain, that suffering, and that trial. And he tells us, this is not the end. This isn't how the story ends. not for him and not for each one of us. And so as we We come overwhelmed with our own trials as we feel weighed down in our sufferings. As our own fears become so real, we can become paralyzed. We find ourselves on our own crosses. And right there in the midst of it, the eyes of faith can see him reaching out to us from the cross. Promising us that if we keep reaching out to him, one day we too will be with him in paradise. The third of the seven last words of Jesus comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verses 25 to 27. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary of Magdala. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple there whom he loved, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. How quickly things in life can be thrown into turmoil. Take one look at the world around us for numerous and obvious examples. A day doesn't go by when we hear more and more dire news about seemingly everything. There are moments of turmoil that can happen in our personal lives, like when the last child moves out of the house and leaving a mother and father with quiet moments to talk for the first time in 25 years. Changes of separation or divorce. Something tragic like when a loved one dies. Times of life when everything just seems to get shifted around and nothing seems settled. That was happening in the life of the friends and the followers of Jesus. Their master had been arrested and is now dying on the cross. The one whom they had been following, who had given them courage and hope for these last three years, was, it seemed, now coming to the very end of his life. They saw their dreams vanishing, their hopes dashing, everything seemingly crumbling. For Mary, Jesus' mother, it was crumbling. A mother looks at her child as a special gift from God. And for Mary, this was even more so the case. How does she see this special gift of God treated this way? A mother's love, a mother's heart ripped apart, not being able to witness this horrific cruelty, yet can never leave her son's side. It was also crumbling on a different level for Mary, a way that wasn't even forefront in her mind but it was on the mind of her son looking at his mother and knowing it was his duty to take care of mom here Jesus is dying yet he's still not thinking of himself for St. John felt like the world was crumbling too he had left his stable life as a fisherman to follow Jesus they'd become best friends now what and so in these moments where for two people whom Jesus loves so dearly, whose worlds are crumbling, Jesus speaks to the two of them. Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. On one level, it was very basic and touching thing that Jesus is doing. He's speaking to his closest earthly friend and asks him to take over as the provider for his mom. Behave as Jesus' siblings would do if Jesus had any siblings. Do what society would expect a son to do for his mom, to care for her. And John agrees. But there's something even more going on. There's a deeper level of contact which Jesus is making here. Jesus has made it clear that as far as he's concerned, those who do the will of God are his relatives. So Jesus speaks to two people gathered at the foot of the cross and he commands them to look at each other, to acknowledge each other, to become joined as relatives to each other, care for each other. And with that command, viewing the scene, we are witnesses to the birth of the family of Christ, the family of Christ, with Jesus giving us Mary as our mother, and now the group of people joined together as brothers and sisters joined together at the foot of the cross joined together in Jesus Christ Jesus calls us who gather beneath the foot of his cross gathered together in his name to behold one another as well to see those family relationships mothers sons fathers daughters brothers and sisters to recognize how we are his family, inseparable as spiritual relatives. Good Friday was the starting point of this new family of Christ. Mary, our mother, John, the beloved disciple, has given us a model and a challenge. How well do we behold one another as members of Christ's family? The fourth of the seven last words comes from the Gospel John, chapter 19, verses 28 to 29. After this, aware that everything was now finished, in order that the Scripture might be fulfilled, Jesus said, I thirst. There was a vessel filled with common wine, so they put a sponge soaked in wine on a spring of hyssop and put it up to his mouth. I thirst. In 1923, there was a Jewish theologian by the name of Martin Buber. He wrote this immensely influential little book entitled I and Thou. And a very CliffsNotes way of describing the point of the book is that there are two ways of relating to other people in our lives. We can see them as objects to be used, what Buber describes as an I and this it relationship or we can see others as having feelings and dreams and needs as real and as important as our own that can be the basis for for dialogue and more importantly relationship an I and thou relationship Buber describes how he came upon this theory of I thou and I it when he was a professor of philosophy at a university in Germany a young student of his came to see him one day a student had received a draft notice to serve in the German Army in World War I. He was a pacifist by nature and he was afraid of being killed in battle, but at the same time he was also a loyal and fiercely patriotic German. So he asked Buber what did he think he should do. Should he serve his country and risk being killed or claim conscientious objector status and perhaps leave another young man to be killed in his place? And Buber said at the time he was in the middle of some very important theological and philosophical projects that he was working on and was kind of annoyed at the young man's claim on his time and attention. So the professor sort of dismissed him with a rather dismissive thought saying, that's a really serious dilemma do what you think is right. The young man in despair for lack of guidance committed suicide. And Buber, for the rest of his life, felt incredible guilt for not being more present to that young man, for seeing him as an interruption and not as a human soul in torment. Buber felt he had sinned against an image of God in that young student by treating him as an object without needs and feelings. It's so easy to treat others as objects or to measure their worth by what they are able to do for us. We carelessly dismiss as an unimportant, if not undesirable, those who distract us from our own agendas, who de- demand too much from us, who make us uncomfortable, who fail to live up to our expectations. We can expect a great deal from one another. And it seems there's no end to our disappointment in our spouses, our children, our parents, our coworkers, our neighbors. And these standards can drive people to the edges of society very far away from us. Think back to the Samaritan woman in the Gospel of John. She's one such victim. Her religious background, her nationality made her a non-person in the eyes of the Jews. And her broken relationships, her failed marriages, other skeletons in the closet made her feel immense shame from her own fellow Samaritans. Jesus' encounter of her at the well and when he asks her for something to drink and we hear in that encounter Jesus' words from the cross I thirst. What does he thirst for? He thirsts for her healing. He thirsts for her fullness of joy. He thirsts for her to turn away from the bad choices and the bad influences that she's been surrounded by that's made her feel overwhelmed shame that she has to go to the well at the time of day when no one would be around to give her those looks and all those gossips and to laugh at her. He thirsts for her to be able to confront her life and to be made new. And Jesus does this in a way where he sees her in an I-thou relationship. He asks her for a drink. He dresses this broken, lonely, and ashamed woman and says, give me a drink. It's an invitation to be at risk. It's an invitation to cross boundaries and ancient taboos. He's thirsty, she has a bucket. There's a well of their mutual ancestor, Jacob. Jesus does not look down on her as her fellow townspeople have done, and he calls no attention to her brokenness. Instead, he acknowledges his own brokenness. He's tired, he's thirsty, but Jesus reaches out to her from his need, not hers. And by reaching out to her from his own need, he gives her dignity, he gives her respect. There's something she can do for him. Jesus gives her identity and purpose. Suddenly something new, something real wells up inside her. It's a new confidence, a new spirit. And from this new spirit, she finds herself saying, I thirst too. And it's a thirst that will not be quenched by the waters at the bottom of Jacob's well. She thirsts for real life, authentic life. And Jesus gives it to her without cost, without condition. So often we can fear God. We remind ourselves that God is all-powerful, all-knowing. He can do anything. Yet to believe he's all-loving and would want to have a personal relationship, a personal dialogue with us seems, for some strange reason, impossible. We come to the well over and over again to draw water. And Jesus is still thirsty. Still thirsting for us to be healed, to find the fullness of joy that only he can give, still thirst for us to be made new. Are we ready to bring him a drink? Are we ready to talk with him? Are we ready to reveal our own brokenness to him and reveal our deepest thirst as well? From the cross, Jesus cries out to us, I thirst, what shall we do? The fifth word of the cross comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, verses 33 to 34. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three o'clock, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Out of Britain came this story a few years ago. It seems that a large sculpture of Christ on the cross had been removed from outside a church in western Sussex after one of the clergymen said it was disturbing to people. The 10-foot sculpture crucifix, which had been mounted on the foot of St. John's Church, since the early 1960s was, according to parish leaders, a horrifying depiction of pain and suffering, which was putting people off, scaring children. It had then been replaced with a new stainless steel cross. The leaders of the church said that in surveys they conducted on the crucifix, the results came back with every comment about the sculpture being negative. The vicar of that church said, children have commented on how scary they find it, and parishioners remarked how off-putting they felt, felt it was as a symbol outside the church. As a key exterior symbol for us, it made people more uncomfortable rather than having a sense of hope and life and the power of the resurrection. So the sculpture was taken down prior to Christmas of that year and was mounted on a wall on the grounds of a museum. The curator of the museum remarked that the powerful image portrayed by the figure was that of Christ in pain, which he said, today isn't an image that a lot of churches want to follow. They'd much rather see an empty cross indicating that Christ has risen. That speaks of a reality of humanity. Every one of us wants to be with the winner, the victor, the triumphant one. Few of us know who didn't win the Grammy Award for Best Artist or the the runners-up to the Oscar for Best Actress or Best Actor. We celebrate the winners. We lampoon all the rejects. Yes, the notion of winning appeals to us for obvious reasons. The idea of focusing on a cross, seeing a man dying, hearing those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is at a minimum disturbing to us. And yet this is one of the most misunderstood moments of the crucifixion. Jesus isn't crying out words of abandonment. Jesus isn't saying God has forgotten him. It's quite the opposite. As Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's invoking the entire 22nd Psalm from which that sentence comes from. It would be like us hearing the words fourscore and seven years ago, and in a sense recalling Abraham Lincoln's entire Gettysburg Address, or ask not what your country can do for you. In a sense, Summoning images of JFK's inaugural address. So if we take those words completely out of context, they sound, they look like a cry of complete isolation. But if you read the entire psalm, it's really a prayer of hope, of faith, of confidence, that in the midst of his anguish, as the world around him ridicules and is repulsed at the sight, The psalmist and Jesus reiterates his confidence that God is with him as he proclaims, God has not spurned or disdained the misery of this poor wretch. He did not turn away from me, but heard me when I cried out. An interesting question for us, what is our definition of victory? Sure, the image of Christ risen from the grave coming back from the dead in glorious form, seeing an empty cross which speaks to the hope of the resurrection, those are powerful for us, for sure. But doesn't the reality that a man who has experienced the worst things ever imaginable that the world could do to him, who's rejected by the world, tortured by the world, deserted by those who were supposed to be his closest and truest friends and left for dead, Yet in the face of all that, refuses to lose faith that his loving father hasn't rejected him, knows his almighty father would not let this torture and death be his end. How could these words from the cross, how could that image of the crucifixion not speak to us as well? It's true. (laughs) Looking at the form of a crucifix isn't pleasant. And people often want to bypass Good Friday and even reflecting on these seven last words. It's not pretty in the views of the world. Yet what that church that removed that crucifix forgot, what a lot of us can forget at times as well, is that there are many things in the world that are not pleasant and are not pretty. And if we just fast forward to Easter and bypass these Challenging moments, the Easter hope we keep hearing about is a bit hollow. It becomes far-fetched to us who aren't able to delete the uglier moments in our lives when our faith is being tested. The only way to experience Easter hope is when we are experiencing those times when we feel God has abandoned us and somehow summon the faith to still believe in him. The sixth of Jesus' seven last words comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verse 30. When Jesus had taken the wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he handed over the spirit. It is finished. The 1998 epic film, Saving Private Ryan, is often remembered for the extremely intense opening 24 minutes that depict the beginning of the Normandy invasion during World War II when American soldiers land on Omaha Beach. But the story is really about one man, one soldier, Private First Class James Francis Ryan. After the Normandy invasion, a general going through a slew of death notices realizes that Private Ryan's mother would be receiving notification that three of her four sons have all died within days of each other, and that the notices would all arrive on the same day. Private Ryan is unaware of the death of his three brothers because his regiment is missing in action. And the general believes this is too much sacrifice to ask one mother, one family to make. And so he orders that Private Ryan be found and sent home immediately. And so the rest of the movie shows how six army rangers and one infantryman led by Captain John Miller, going practically on no information on his whereabouts, begin this difficult search for this one man, Private Ryan. The search is dangerous and grows more and more frustrating to the men as they begin to incur casualties themselves. One of the soldiers is killed by a sniper. Their medic is killed. And in the dramatic climax to the film, Miller and the rest of the squad finally find Private James Ryan with a group of paratroopers trying to defend this bridge against the German counterattack. Ryan, even upon learning of the deaths of his brothers, as well as those in the search party looking for him, adamantly refuses to leave the very fragile makeshift unit Captain Miller, along with the soldiers from the search party, remain with Ryan as this German offensive begins again. And ultimately, the U.S. is successful in holding the Germans off, but not before the remaining members of the search party are killed, including Captain Murphy, whose dying words to Private Ryan are, James earn this, earn it. The movie concludes with Private Ryan, now an older man, visiting Captain Miller's grave in Normandy with his family. And he breaks down as he asks himself whether he has earned the sacrifice. He turns to his wife asking if he's a good man who deserved the gift that these men gave him. As we reflect on Jesus' passion and death and remember his seven last words, we find ourselves, in a sense, in a similar position. In this, the sixth word, we hear Jesus crying out, it's finished, what is finished? His passion, his death, his sacrifice. And we come to the foot of the cross and we stand in awe of this incredible love, the sacrifice that cost Jesus his very life, which was made for you and me but there's much that isn't finished as well. In offering himself this way, Jesus doesn't ask us to earn this. That's the depth of his love. He has freely made it for you and for me. That sacrifice, that gift given to us today tells us that Jesus' love for us is far from finished and knows no end. For each of us, there's something else that isn't finished, and that's our response to this amazing love. What is it for you? What is the thing we haven't let go of that we refuse to surrender? What is it that we think we can do on our own that we don't want to allow God in to complete? The ongoing story that is each of our lives, each and every day, asks us, How are we living in response to the sacrifice of Jesus? Will our lives be seen through the prism of this sacrifice? Will we be good men and women? Will we be changed by this gift? The last of Jesus' seven last words from the cross comes from the Gospel of Luke Chapter 23, verses 44 to 46. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon because of an eclipse of the sun. Then the veil of the temple was torn down the middle. Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. The great German composer, Felix Mendelssohn, told a story about how one day, as he was traveling, he was passing through a small village. And in this village he had heard that the church in town had a great organ. So he went to the church to see if it was open and if he might be able to spend some time playing on it. As he approached the church, he heard strains of music The church organist who had served the church for many years was inside practicing. So Mendelssohn slipped into a back pew and he listened for a while. After some time, he went up to the organ loft and he put his hand on the organist's shoulder and said, pardon me, sir, would you let me play for just a few minutes? And the old organist looked at him and said sharply, no, I couldn't possibly. This is the church organ. I'm the only one who plays it. It's not for anyone else. Mendelssohn stood there a little bit shocked and listened as the old organist continued to play. And so he put out his hand again a few minutes later and said, please, just a few moments. I promise I won't hurt the organ. But the organist wouldn't hear of it. After a few more minutes, Mendelssohn again put his hand on the old man's shoulders and said, just five minutes. I won't hurt the instrument. Just five minutes. And with a huff, the organist slid off the bench and Mendelssohn seated himself and began to play. Five minutes, ten minutes, fifteen, twenty, almost a whole hour passed by. But the entire time, the old organist stood there listening, almost spellbound, with tears streaming down his face. Mendelssohn finally got up embarrassed that he had played for so long, but the old organist leaned forward, finally recognizing the master musician who was standing in his presence. Shaking Mendelssohn's hand, almost not wanting to let it go out of excitement, he said, I almost lost the opportunity to hear the master make music on our instrument. So often when we look at our lives, what it is God is asking us challenging us to do we could be similarly blind we pray to god we say we want his direction we want his guidance we want his presence to animate our lives yet human instinct clicks in and we say in our own way it's my organ only i should play it the final word from the cross of jesus basically is a summation of what jesus has been doing his entire life placing his life placing his spirit into God's hands. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit, he cries out. Those at the foot of the cross see an end as they leave beating their breasts. Yet Jesus' life and death was one of complete surrender and faith will not be in vain. Good Friday ends with the promised hope that where the world can only see death and destruction, Somehow, the master musician of the universe will once again make beautiful music. The Lord is asking each of us to trust him to do the same for us with our very lives. He's very gently asking for us to give him five minutes (laughs) and he promises he won't hurt the instrument either. Are we willing to give him the bench and let him play.